Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The young Swedish activist Greta Thunberg has urged everyone, her generation and every generation, to commit to swift and commensurate action on climate change. But are their parents and grandparents morally obligated to listen? Is our morality actually adequate to respond to the climate crisis? I talked to philosopher Dale Jameson about the morality of fighting for our lives when we possibly are not directly impacted? How do we take responsibility for people very far away or for people not even born yet? Professor Jameson is a professor of environmental studies and philosophy at NYU's School of Law and in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. He's not a scientist himself, but early on he found himself surrounded by alarmed scientists. And he said that falling in with climate monitors is like falling in with people who do Tai Chi. It changed his life and he's committed himself to addressing the threat with the lens of a philosopher. Listen to Dale explain to me why taking action is not a choice, but an obligation, but why our moral concepts are probably not adequate to articulate that. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Dale, welcome. Uh, I'm so happy you can join me today on Think About It. Pleased to be here. So Dale, you're a professor of environmental studies and philosophy, and you also teach law. I read your recent book, Reason in a Dark Time, and I read an earlier book, Morality's Progress, Essays in Humans, Other Animals, and the Rest of Nature. And I was really interested to think that morality could progress, or that reason could be different today. And I'm going to ask you a really kind of basic philosophical question, which is basic from my perspective, meaning it's probably not a philosophical question. Isn't morality supposed to be grounded in eternal, unchanging principles, being good, being just, being fair, having responsibilities. So your book seemed to say we need to adapt or adjust to new conditions. Right. So in a way, this is the deepest, most foundational question in moral philosophy. 
whether morality is transcendental, whether in some sense it's given to us by something outside of ourselves, whether that's God, whether that's, uh, that's, that's reason that's independent of us or something else like that, or whether morality is in some way constructed in human societies to provide certain services and to allow us to pursue certain kinds of ends. I'm on the latter side, and that's an argument that we could have all day long. But, but part of what motivates me to be on the, on, the, on, the, on the latter side, which I think is probably important for other things we'll talk about here, is it's really hard to understand how the first kind of morality could actually evolve in a world that's governed by natural law. Where does this external mandate come from? Where does this categorical imperative come from? If you think of morality as something that's a human construction, then we can see it as continuous with the kinds of systems that control behavior uh, among other animals as well as humans. And the, the first one to go back to say if it's anchored in God or in reason, does philosophy sort of engage with this question all the time? Or when you're saying you're on the other side, so you, are you on the side where most philosophy is today, that most people think that there's context-based? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think philosophy as it's constructed today tends to be dominated by people who in some sense are in reaction to science and broadly naturalistic worldviews. So much contemporary philosophy is trying to find a place for something that is sort of beyond scientific understanding. So I think I'm on the minority side here, but let's just say that it's a very vivacious, very active minority side that you see represented in every country in the world. And you got interested in this, the other thing we're gonna talk about. So, so the, what used to be called the environment, and I guess now it's called climate change or the Anthropocene, we can talk about these terms, but you've been working on this for a very long time. Very right? long. It's not that you discovered this three years ago and started to think, wow, I gotta, do something about this or speak out. Right. And, and the way I got into these issues has really colored the way that I think about interdisciplinary work. Um, you know, I, I sort of grew up in a world where I was in a beautiful place. I grew up in the beaches in San Diego, California, and we always had animals and all that. So I was kind of preset to appreciate a, a lot of stuff about nature. You know, and then I did the stuff you were supposed to do in graduate school. I became disciplined and very disciplinary and all of that. And then uh, in the early 1980s, at, when I was at the University of Colorado, I just fell in with a bunch of climate modelers. And falling in with climate modelers is a little like uh, falling in with people who do Tai Chi or people who are culinary experts or something. You don't think of this as part of your professional life. There are people you hang out with, who really? you admire, you know, you kind of learn stuff from. And then finally, at some point, things started to kind of come together. But it, so your philosophical training, right. which was disciplined and you were interested in sort of these large questions, right. very technical in a way? Or yeah, no? very technical. And the first question that really gripped me was this. Climate science as it's done, and particularly in those days it was really striking, consisted mostly of a bunch of you know, fairly boring people with very large machines crunching a lot of numbers that went on for very, very, very long periods of time, and then sort of getting this output about what the global climate might look like in 100 years or 500 years. This was not how I was educated to think about science. Science was supposed to be people doing something that looked more like experiments, something doing right. looked more like observations in the world and so on. So the first set of issues that I was really gripped by is how could these computer simulations 
really be thought to sort of hook on to the world and provide knowledge of the world in a scientific way th that I understood. And meaning scientific, reliable, verifiable, you right. did many, many experiments, but Empirical. they couldn't run experiments. They couldn't right. change the climate here and there and see what happens. They could just take as much data as they... Well, the experiments were not the sort of thing that we normally think of as experiments. They were these really almost like philosophical thought experiments. So suppose that we have a world and we take these parameters, whether it's carbon dioxide or whether it's land cover in some way, and we just gin it up in a certain way. What's going to happen to all of these other variables if we, if, if we do that? So they're very much like philosophical thought experiments. So they would model something. Exactly. But it was a thought experiment because they had some data and said, if this goes in this direction, these right. will most likely be the outcome. Exactly. So this is in the 80s, so this kind of, you think people are modeling this, and is there a sense of they're discovering something that's kind of alarming, or is, well, the, of, are they just do, doing their work in Colorado? Or in yeah, <laughs> so in a way it was a bit more of a curiosity that increasingly turned to a sense of alarm. But even then, I would say the dominant thought was this. Oh, there's probably some feedback in the climate system. It's so complex that's going to neutralize these forcings. So yeah, if we put a lot of carbon in, we're going to have all these terrible results. It's going to destabilize climate. But you know, this is a pretty self-regulating complex system. And so something else is probably going to happen to make it OK. And if not, all those adults in gray flannel suits who hang out in Washington and at the UN, they're going to fix the problem. So there was a growing sense of alarm, but there was sort of always this thought that somehow it was never going to come to what it's come to. And these people, are they scientists by training at this point? Are you hanging out with them yeah. in Colorado? So they're trained as physicists yeah. or biologists yes. or geologists. Exactly. So they have scientific training, but That's they're not trained to do this really, right? Because there was no study of climate, right? Well, that's right. They're all people who really themselves sort of started from, from some other place. So, um, so one of these people, for example, was someone who was a pretty straight-ahead physicist, Steve Schneider, for example, uh, who became one of the great theoreticians of climate, of, of climate change. Another was somebody who who's kind of started as a meteorologist, and then meteorology became increasingly quantitative, increasingly computer-driven. And then he ended up driving the NCAR climate models, and he was really the first person to couple ocean models with atmospheric models, which now we just take for granted that this right. is a single system. So these they would have been studied separately. They would have been studied separately. You know, everyone's got their own model, and they publish their own papers, and their little journals, and so on and so forth. So yes, it felt really exciting, because, because sort of at the top of this food chain, you felt that the three or four people who were my best friends were people who were really thinking about things in a holistic and complex way that, that, that really hadn't been possible before the computer revolution. So that's another part of it, that they suddenly can have data sets or whatever, they get these models and they can run these models and start talking to each other. Exactly. And the other big piece of this, which you're referring to with the data sets, is remote sensing. So we're getting all this data from satellites, for example, that we could have never gotten from having people trudging around doing ground, what just ground data, observations. What data, for example, can be measured by satellites? Oh, we can, we, I mean, we can measure all kinds of things. Like, for example, the, uh, the, the Earth's temperature balance, the heat balance of the Earth, for example. We can do that holistically. We can get patterns of cloud cover, for, for oh, example, okay. which affect the feedbacks. Right. All this kind of stuff that you just simply, you know, couldn't have been doing from ground-based. So this is kind of scientific research, and then there's two things that happen. So you come in as a philosopher, you can help them with the thought experiments, but your work starts to move in a direction to say, what are we supposed to do? What are the values that should motivate us to do the next steps? And these values, as you said, 
maybe informed by this, these new conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get to politics, sort of the, the, your question moves from, I can help you think through problems to my interest is really what do we do here right. with all this new information, right? Right. Exactly. So my first interests were basically epistemological philosophy of science issues. And then it sort of became clear, well, if this stuff is really going to happen, there's going to be winners and losers. Not everybody is contributing the same amount to these changes. The impacts are, are going to be quite, quite different. And, and one really interesting event was a workshop in Malta called uh, in the 80s called Winners and Losers in the Context of Global Warming, which was an interesting moment. Wangari Matai, who later went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize, was there from Kenya. There were American political leaders like Senator Gary Hart who were there, a very small workshop. And that was really the first time I think people started to try to think systematically about the differential impacts. Before that, when people talked about climate change, which they didn't very much, it was, well, we're all in this together, you know, you know, we're one world, the, the sort of more the old Al Gore message. And what happens know. here when this discussion happens at this workshop? So where, where is the, who are the winners and who are the losers, roughly well, speaking? The losers turn out as we've, and this result has just been sort of increasingly, become increasingly um, well, well verified and robust, is the losers are the people in the regions who always lose, basically. Because in a way, in terms of its impacts, climate change is like any other problem in the sense that the richer you are, the more you can buy your way out of problems, the more insulated you are from the impacts of your actions. Whether you're a teenager being arrested for drunk driving, or whether you're a North American society that's going to suffer from the impacts of climate change from being on, a, on essentially a carbon high for 200 years. And so the rich are they, so, but climate is a thing that affects everybody, but right. so for the first time people are saying, well, it actually is gonna affect people disproportionately, right. depending right. on where they live. Depending on where or they live. And what resources they have? Yes, exactly, Okay. both of those things. So this is a political question then, right? Right, so well, then it so, kind of starts as an ethical question. So that's, I'm interested, what's the, what's the difference for you in that? Because first one's a political north-south versus right. an ethical question. Right, so, so ultimately for me, anyway, politics turns out to be kind of applied morality. So, I mean, I mean, so one of the things I guess I first realized about politics, and my thinking did become increasingly political during this period, is, you know, the dominant ways of thinking about international politics in political science uh, is, is usually called realism. And realism is the idea that states basically operate on the basis of their own rational self-interest. Now, um, if you really start thinking about that, it's two thoughts are inescapable. Three, three thoughts are inescapable. The first is, well, you know, the world would actually be a lot better off if states operated on the basis of their rational self-interest. They wouldn't go to the edge of blowing themselves Because rational means that reason would tell you what are the good things for the greatest possible number of people? Right, or this, even the survival of our state and, right. you know, into the future and so on. So you look at this mess of a global system and you go, well, it doesn't look all that rational to me. And then you look at this idea of self-interest and you begin to see, well, this is a really constructed idea that what people think is in their interests depends on their own beliefs and values. And, and it isn't as though we're back to the kind of transcendental morality. It isn't as if Apollo comes down and says, Yuli or Germany or Bangladesh, these are your interests. Go thou and maximize them. 
These are things that you actually create according to your own value system. So the values then become really inescapable in, in the politics, I think, as well as the morality. So, and when you come out of the 80s now, so now you sort of start to realize and it becomes better known, although I don't think really climate changes even a word or a topic at that point, right? It sort of moves. And so when we move through the decades now, your work then starts to think, okay, how do you, what is your um, sort of your effort is trying to see the underlying values or to see what would be a new a response to this new situation? So I would say during that period now in the 90s, there's sort of three themes to my work. The first is economics alone isn't going to fix this problem, both because economics is ideologically driven, and secondly, people are only going to adopt economic approaches to this problem if they want to fix the problem, solve the problem in the first place. So, so, so there's a kind of pushback against economics in favor of more value-based thinking in, in that period. A second thing is really the challenge that each of us face as individuals, which, which is the discovery, you know, I'm a big contributor to this problem. Now, it's true that if I change the way I behave, it isn't as though the problem is going to go away, but there becomes a challenge of aligning my life with my values. What does that mean for all of us who are affluent, who live in rich parts of the world? So that becomes a theme of my work. And then the third part really is about global justice and what a just global system might be. So in the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was adopted in 1992, it essentially says that stabilizing global climate is a common but differentiated responsibility among states. So in a way, I'm trying to think through what that means. So what that means is states have different responsibilities and all of us as actors have different responsibilities. In the second part that you're working on, saying we're all contributing in a way, right. it's very hard to think of you contributing to something and sort of you have these kind of thought experiments in your book. So I'm contributing to something that will play out maybe in the far future. It seems a bit remote right. to think, okay, I'm doing these things right now, but it's gonna stay in the system and maybe in a hundred years people won't be able to do certain things that I think everybody should be able to do. So you're trying to get the first one is how do you get people to understand what responsibility really is? Because we've been trained to be responsible for actions we control. Exactly. And I think, and, and now we're starting to move into seeing climate change as part of this cluster of issues that people talk about under the term the Anthropocene. And I think what's characteristic of climate change in this period of the Anthropocene is this old model of responsibility one you described is no longer really adequate to thinking about how we address those, those, those problems. The idea where I, I do something as a single agent, it has some demonstrable effect in the world, right, that I've caused and brought about, and I'm responsible for that, either through compensation or punishment or whatever it may be. Instead, now we're in a world where we all contribute, relatively speaking, infinitesimal amounts to incredibly systematic problems that extend very far in both space and time. And our, our, our legal concepts, our moral concepts, just did not, back to the story of how moral systems happen, did not evolve to address those kinds of problems because those are not the problems, for example, that people faced when the Ten Commandments came down from Mount Sinai. Do you think there are other moments in history when morality had to address, you call this sort of 
and I know it's not the perfect term, you say commonplace moralities or common sense moralities, that it's not quite adequate anymore. Right. Had there been moments before, do you think, in history when people had to invent new moralities? Yes, and I think we can actually learn from those transitions. Now, one of these transitions, which again is so baked into our consciousness, it's hard to recognize, was the transition to capitalism. Because the virtues of the capitalist man are quite different from the traditional medieval virtues. And a case had to be made by people like Bernard Mandeville, for example, and even Adam Smith, about why it was okay for you to be selfish, for you to be egoistic, for you to pursue your own interests. And that's because, actually, in pursuing your own self-interest in this market situation, you're making other people better off as well. So there was a kind of moral revolution that occurred with the rise of capitalism that did transfigure pre-existing values. And that's the kind of thing that I think has to happen in the, in, in the Anthropocene. And so when you're talking to people right now, people ask you this all the time. I know that people ask say, what are you supposed to do? And you said, you contribute a smidgen to something that is so grand that there's, I think, at least two issues. One is it's so small, so I do this, you know, I, you know, I rode my bike here today, but, you know, I'll take a car or something. That's so little compared to this big thing, so I have a hard time getting the scale right. right. So how do you mediate this? So how do you t teach people, well, you contribute a tiny little bit, but even that tiny little bit, because then people say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Right, exactly. So I think we, we sort of need to fall back now and think about what it means to live a meaningful life. A meaningful life can't be held hostage to outcomes. So for example, if, I mean, if Nelson Mandela would have lived the life that he did, but apartheid would not have collapsed. I don't think we'd say, ah, Nelson Mandela, what a fool. He didn't live a meaningful life. He should have gone into finance and made, and made compromises. We would think it's tragic for the world and tragic for South Africa that apartheid was still in place. But I think that we would still look to Mandela as somebody who'd led a meaningful life. Why? Because he had lived in a way that was aligned with his values. And I think then we can sort of transfer that insight into something like the climate change case. What's important for us is to live in a way that's aligned with our values. We hope and we struggle in the direction of transforming the world and making this a better world. But whether we succeed is largely beyond our control. And so you're saying that's not so uncommon? Yes. That, I, then it's not that morality is reducible to my action, my immediate effects. Right. Lots of things we do for what you call meaningful life for reasons that are not as immediate and tangible. That, that's right. They're much more about this alignment with our values. Otherwise, we're thinking of ourselves as a kind of instrument, right? And, I mean, so suppose I said the only meaningful life for me is if I can make this thing happen in the world. Well, it's, it's like thinking of myself as a lever or something, right? Or a steam engine. But that's not what it is to think of myself as a person living a life in a world. And to go back to this idea of values, so Mandela's value was that a egalitarian just society would not have this kind of racial caste system. As we know, lots of people disagreed. Right. They had other values. Right. So when you're saying a meaningful life would be to maybe not add to the carbon imbalance and to add to climate change. And some people say, that's not, e first of all, they're saying it doesn't even happen. And secondly, that's not my value. Right. So how do you get to those two? But there's a, I'm packing a lot of different questions right, into this. Right, right. 
Well, value pluralism, I think, is just a, a deep fact about the world as we know it. And it's not going to go away. And so to some extent, we have to respect other people's values and alternative ways that people find meaning in their, in their lives. And not everyone is going to want to imitate the way I live, for example, but what I can hope and ask is that they respect it and, and, and allow it, and that, and that this, is, this is reciprocal. Having said that, I think we're also living in a time in which people tend to say, oh, well, there's a value disagreement here. Let's just go watch different TV channels or, you know, and occasionally come and punch each other out. I think a lot of progress can actually be made towards creating solidarity among people who seem to have different values. But, you know, and sometimes the progress can be done through words and through reason, but sometimes it can be done through shared experiences. I mean, um, I, I grew up, for example, um, near the desert in Southern California. And a lot of people find deserts to be about as repulsive as anything. They think of them as wastages and you know, empty, empty spaces on the planet and so on. Um, and so what I will say to an open-minded person who has that view is, well, let's go camping. You know, come, come and spend a couple nights with me in the desert. Let's sleep under the stars. Let's be aware of the sounds that happen at, the, at night in the desert when is actually when life comes out in the desert. Let's feel that wind. Let's maybe read a little bit of literature about the desert, the desert fathers, and so on. And at the end of that experience, we may actually come out with a value system that is more closely aligned, or we may not. But either way, we will now have shared an experience that we can at least hope will lead to some mutual respect. And you're suggesting that experience, they could evolve right. or change. Exactly. Ideally toward, are they going to evolve ideally toward where you want them to be? Well, I hope my values evolve to where a reasonable person would hope they would be as well. I mean, I, have to, I think I have to look at my own values as dynamic in, 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 in that way. And this is honestly where a lot of our current concern with identity is in, in the United States is really a problem. Because once you make a value set part of your identity, it's very hard for this to be dynamic then because you lose yourself when you lose your values. I am a conservative, right? Or I am a liberal or I am a this uh, is very different from saying I favor these policies. What you're introducing though is a conversation about values and all your work is a philosophical conversation whereas people think climate change is just, as you said, it's not an economic, it can't solve it through economics. They're saying it's a political issue. Right. And then, or they're saying, well, values, yeah, right, and I don't even believe it exists. Right. So that's another, so to go back, that's an epistemological problem. There's a lot of people who don't believe climate change. I mean, we have a, uh, an administration in America right now that is very actively working to say this is just, I don't know what they call it, the Chinese hoax or something. Right. And there are all sorts of ways of dismissing it. And they're dismissing science. So when you go back to, you work with scientists originally, but you work in epistemology, they work and science. Mm -hmm. How do you find a space in this debate of right. it's not real? So the first thing we need to do, I think, is to understand what is the dog and what is the tail in, 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 in this science denialism mm -hmm. issue around, around climate change. Now, yeah, what, what did you call it? Epistemological nihilism? Somewhere? Epistemological yeah. nihilism is the term that I use, right. Meaning I don't believe it exists. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. 
and, 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 and I think to some extent now, in the United States in particular, we're locked into this rhetorical vice where people who don't want to adopt certain kinds of po public policies, like carbon taxes, for example, mm -hmm. basically, instead of arguing against the policy, will deny the science which the policy is meant to solve. And there's something deeply irrational about this. So, I mean, so let me just give you an example. Take libertarianism as a political philosophy, which is essentially the philosophy that we should have the most minimal state possible, right? Now, this is a perfectly respectable political philosophy. I happen to disagree with it. It's one that one can have arguments about. But it has no implications at all about whether injecting carbon into the atmosphere is going to destabilize climate. I mean, that's a scientific question, mm -hmm. right? It's not a question of political philosophy. Mm -hmm. But yet, libertarians in the United States typically deny the science of climate change. Now, what I think is going on in that case is not really an argument about the science. It's an argument about politics that's going on in the guise of arguing about science. Now, I think there's two important implications of that. One is you can talk science till you're blue in the face to those people, and of course you're not going to make any progress because that's the tail. That's not really the dog. The second important implication is that it, as a society, it leads us to this really dangerous case that's not unlike the old Soviet Union and the whole business of the Lyshenko affair and all of that, where we simply import all of our value disagreements and political disagreements into the science itself. And we lose the possibility then of anything like a neutral arbiter of at least some questions about what we should believe. So it's not surprising in a way then that once people start going down this road of denying the science of climate change, even though that may not really be what's pushing their policy views, then vaccine denial, all kind, evolution denial, all these kinds of things start going together in a bundle. And that's incredibly dangerous. And how do you disentangle that? I mean, you've written about sort of these distrust of elites and their kind of a sense that, and how do you disentangle that and whose role is that? The right. philosopher or the politician or the scientist? Right. Well, I don't want to sound like a good union man at this point, but I think philosophy at its best is very well situated to, to do this. And, you know, we have this idea of the Socratic method as if it's sort of about teachers humiliating students in law school classes. Because we all watch the paper change <laughs> <Right. laughs> in Harvard Law School. That's right. Like, Damn. That's right. And, <laughs> it's a case, 1979, Supreme Court, tell me. And therefore decided to do something else with our lives, Not right? right. Um, you know, but, but at its best, what Socrates is about and what the birth of philosophy is about is simply puncturing pretensions, is about asking questions. And as Socrates said, look, if I'm wise, it's only because I know that I don't know. And we're living at a time in which, in which a, re, you know, a real skepticism about things, not denialism, because denialism is, is, is another dogma, but asking hard questions. What's the evidence for this? Why should we believe this? Why should we actually do this? What will this solve? And not being sort of put off by power, by um, 
you know, hierarchy by any of those things can actually be, I think, a really powerful tool for trying to sort of get us back to really a more pragmatic place, which is really where we need and to be. And you just made a really important distinction. There's healthy skepticism, right. robust debate. Right. And even people who believe, let's say, if it, it's not really a matter of belief in terms of dogma, right. they should question science. Absolutely. They show me the data, prove right. this to me, all of this. That should be healthy and right. But right. you're saying there's a, and you introduce this somewhere else, you say the denialism, there's a bad faith dimension to it, or it's sort of people... Right. So right. That's another category in philosophy that you can say I can be skeptical or I can be just ask you questions and just not stop asking questions. Right, right. Right? It's not Socratic in this way. No. So how do you distinguish between healthy skepticism and the people now saying we're just skeptics? Yeah. Well, again, when people say they're just skeptics and this is scientific skepticism, uh, the bad faith tends to be written all over that. In, in part, for something you were beginning to allude to, because there's actually no answer to the question that's going to satisfy them. Hmm. So, so that's going to be... So they're not genuinely wanting to learn? They're not or, genuinely wanting to hmm. know. And that's going to be one mark of there being a, 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 another dogma here. Um, but, um, but, but I think a second thing, which really comes out in the climate change debate, is is where are these questions coming from? You know, because I know we don't like to say this in the classroom these days, but there is a difference between good questions and bad questions. <laughs> I would think so. I mean, I, I interview a lot of people. I sometimes think sometimes they're not so good. Yeah. I mean, especially when we're talking about sort of, you know, the kind of outer reaches of research. And, you know, and when you've heard something that's been pulled off the internet for the 19th time that sort of recirculates every two or three years and has been responded to, and yet this comes back, this is not a good faith question at that, at that point. This is simply a rhetorical move. And you've made this distinction in your book. You say this is a matter of sincerity, yes. not so much hypocrisy. Yes. Can you right. walk me through this distinction? Yes. So I think, that, so sincerity I think is a hugely important concept because sincerity goes back to what I was talking about, about trying to align one's life with one's, with one's values. That's what it is to be sincere, is to engage in, in that effort. Of course I fail to do that. We all fail to do that. So the charge of hypocrisy is not a particularly interesting charge. We all fall short of our ideals. So hypocrisy means I don't quite live up to my own values continually right. and that's, you could call me hypocritical right. Um, right. because I failed in this one area. Exactly. But if I'm not sincere, that's different. Right. Sincerity is being engaged on that project of alignment, okay. knowing that we're, that we're going to fail. And it's a hard time for sincerity, I think, generally in our cultural climate on, from both the left and the right because you know, we're living in this time in which irony is considered to be one of the greatest virtues on both the left and the right, that I'm going to hang something out there, but I'm not going to either endorse it or not endorse it because that's actually, that would be the sincere response. That's putting myself on the line. So we get, for example, from political leaders, well, some people say that, right? right? Uh, or other kinds of memes, you know, that sort of come through, that sort of plant the idea as a kind of nihilistic, corrosive, force, but without giving you the endorsement of actual sincerity. Well, it's interesting. And sincerity is also, in a weird way, 
kind of a bad word because you're so sincere as you're saying because you're not flexible or you know you're moralistic or something and I think what's interesting one of the many things that are happening is that the next generation our students so younger generations people born in the, actually sort of around 2000 all over the world probably not so much in the United States are really active in this right now they've taken yes. this into their issue this is their issue and they've done it in a very moralistic way and say you are screwing up the world for us mm -hmm. so they're actually making this connection to something that doesn't touch me really concretely and say no actually it's my world right. Right. so in some ways and they have been attacked as being too sincere exactly. in a way right. too righteous right. but I think what's actually interesting about this next generation is saying yeah so I'm sincere because I'm a realist right well for better or for worse I see more of myself in that generation than I have seen of myself in the intervening generations. There is something very 60-ish about the extinction crisis generation um, in, in, on a number of dimensions. So one is this rebellion against parents, you know, that, that, that you've given us a future with, that, that is very uncertain, which is how, how my generation felt with respect to nuclear weapons and war in right. particular. That was the big debate in the like, 60s, I guess, right. right? That's right. I may not have a future because of your irresponsibility. Right. I mean, that's really the critique of, of, this, of this generation. Do parents have an obligation to give a future to their kids? If, I don't think anyone has an obligation to have children. But I think it or, would, or to the next generation. I think it would be pretty irresponsible to have children and not feel that you are at least doing what you can to give them a reasonable but as future. Humans, do we have an obligation to secure a future for future humans? I don't think we do, as a blanket, as a, sort of a blanket obligation. But but the decision to bring a child into the world is perhaps the most profound and important decision that a person can make. And I do think in that case, you really do undertake those obligations. And if you don't talk about your own children, someone having children, just generally, do I have an obligation toward people who are going to live 100 years from now? Honestly, I don't think our obligations are as strong in that respect as some people do. And that's, right. and that's true for two reasons. One reason is I don't think that there's something so special about the human project that the world is necessarily deeply impoverished if this one flames and burns out. You mean this, this species of humans? Which we know it will. I mean, this is another kind of interesting irony, is we all know we're going to die as individuals, but we sort of live as if that's not true. And we also know that Homo sapiens is going to become extinct because this is what species do. But we're worried about that. But we're very worried about and that. And you're saying we should not be that Well, I mean, I mean, I mean it, it, it seems to me in some ways we should think the same thing in both cases. I want to have as good and full and rich a life as possible. And I would not like to die because of some self-destructive stupidity that I engage in. So that's a really different category. So like, we will die, but I don't want to die because I'm right. fool burn too much fossil fuels. Exactly, exactly. I mean, this just seems like, you know, how, how do you tell this story in some other galaxy? You know, there's a, imagine a Homer in another galaxy telling the story about what happened to Homo sapiens on this, on this, on this planet, right? It is not a very attractive story. 
you wrote a book of fiction with um, Bonnie Nansom, right. so Love in the Anthropocene. Right. There's a story in there about the last tiger, right? right? So you use storytelling and this very um, powerful image, kind of Blakeian image of the tiger, and saying this is the last one. And this guy goes in there on a date. He wants to bring and impress this woman. So I'm going to show you how close I am to the last tiger. Right. Do you think what role do you think storytelling has, which is not philosophy proper, not politics? Because you wrote a book of stories. Yeah. Why, yeah. as a philosopher? Well, well, <laughs> I mean, first of all, it was fun, I guess. It's, yes, but interestingly, when I first got into climate change, I, that's when I first started thinking about the power of stories. Because again, going back to my days at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and the big climate models, all this stuff that was telling you that if we remained on our present path, we were going to have a two degree, three degree, four degree, you know, warming of the Earth's mean surface temperature and all this was all coming out and, you know, the, in those kind of, you know, sort of terrible printers, you know, that we used to have and rolls of, rolls of white paper, you know, dot matrix printers and so on. And people were supposed to do something about this, right? I mean, it's hard to get connected to. It's hard to get connected yeah. to. And then I also started thinking about the fact that, again, part of it is because of our intellectual culture, there's other reasons as well. We tend to become sort of specialists in particular things. So if I'm a climate person and I think about the future, I'm thinking about the climate in the future. Mm -hmm. If I'm a computer person and I'm thinking about the future, I'm thinking about computers in the future, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, and, you know, and so on. But what we tend not to think about is the future holistically. Who thinks about the future holistically? People who write stories. Hmm. And, and so they're interdisciplinary by nature. They're not in the field of literature, but they actually think about the human condition. Right. So if, if I want to think about, I mean, I can write an article, say, suppose I'm a roboticist. I might write an article about, about what, where robotics might be in 2020. And, but that's very different than if I say, you know, I have a child, um, Susan, let me tell you about, let me think about and try to tell you what Susan's life will be like in 2020. Because Susan is going to wake up in the morning, you know, she's going to have some nutrition, she's going to go through her day. It forces you to think about things in a much more holistic way. And that's what I love about storytelling. Um, I want to go back to one thing you said, sort of to live in accordance with your values somewhat in some kind of approximation. As you said, we are hypocritical in a certain way. That's kind of a judgy term, or we just fail because we try. Is living in accordance with your values uh, uh, one possibility to live a happy life? Is it connected to happiness, which is a different category in philosophy? Yeah. And I don't even know yeah. if contemporary philosophers right. talk very much about being happy. Yeah, no, do, they, you, do you talk about that? They do, yeah. <laughs> yeah we do. For me, absolutely. So, and this is what is right about the old Greek idea, you know, of human flourishing, yeah. and that virtue leads to happiness. I, I think that's, you know, if you don't take it too seriously, and you don't take that catalog of the virtues too seriously, that idea of flourishing too seriously, the, the link between living in the way that one ought to live and being happy, I think, is a very strong link. And virtue here means? Well, I think it means different things. So, for, so the Greeks had a particular catalog of, 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 of virtues, some of which I think applies to how we still want to live. We still want to live courageously, for example. Mm -hmm. um, 
on the other hand, the Greeks did not have the virtue of humility. This was not a Greek virtue. Honor was a big virtue. Yeah, virtues. honor. <laughs> they were much more into honor, <laughs> right? I think in our world, humility is a much more important. What do you mean by humility? Well, first of all, I think it's epistemological, right? It goes back. We ba can't know everything. We can't know everything, okay. and everything that we do has to, in a way, be revisable and tentative. And okay, our humility in that sense, we can open to new ways. It, it, okay. It, Exactly. This is a virtue that's much more likely to get us through this world. The virtue of honor is a lot more likely to get us blown up in a war. <laughs> globally, right? Um, but I think if you, if you sort of refigure the virtues mm -hmm. and you think about aligning a life with the virtues, mm -hmm. that this is probably the most fundamental source of human, of, of human happiness. And you think that is universal? Yeah. I mean, you use the right. Greeks as a model, but that is not a Greek Western idea, sort no. of say, yet right. human beings want to live. Right. There's a part, is that part of us innately that we want to live in accordance with a system of values? Because you could think, no, we just want to eat and sleep and, you know, make love and be happy. Like, well, that right. would not be happy. But, you know, all those things themselves express value. So the way we make love in different human societies, for example, I mean, there's no, there's, there's no human society where any act of copulation under any and all circumstances is regarded as equally valuable, right? Um, I mean, there are rituals, there's meaning attached to this. This is also true of food and, and, and so on. So I think there's no, you know, so I think you're absolutely right about these main drivers and we don't understand people, we don't understand the centrality of these, of these, of the four F's as people like to talk about them in, uh, in animal ethology. Um, but all of this is accreted and imbued with meaning. And as far as we can tell, this goes back beyond Homo sapiens. I mean, even, even in terms of Neanderthal sites you know, that have been discovered, there, there, there tends to be evidence of ritual and around these. For, the, for this um, generation that's really going to drive this, I think, I do not believe that our generation is really going to be the people, so the next generation. Do you have any recommendation of what they should read or think about in terms of, uh, from your canon of philosophy, I mean, you have a few people you cite, but is there something, because I do think people want to have, what you just gave us, a deeper understanding of what they're trying to accomplish, and to tease apart, economics can't answer it solely. Politics probably runs into a difficulty at some point when it's competing values, that values themselves have to be broken down. Right. So are there texts or thinkers or? Well, well, right, there are. And I'm not going to say anything particularly novel here. But, but it does seem to me that there is a kind of, um, of, of genre of book that has always been written. In fact, was probably more common in the past and is sort of being written again, which is pretty indifferent to the values of traditional disciplines. And some of this, I mean, the classic, the most obvious book like this uh, is, um, it comes immediately to mind, is uh, Sapiens by Harari. Oh yeah, Yuval Harari's book, yeah. 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 The grand history of from the first day we start marching right. in <laughs> Africa and right. we spread out. And <laughs> right, and I think books like that are incredibly important. And, and I mean, I mean, there's a couple things going on in a book like that that I think is important. First of all, it's, the, it's deep history. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we begin to start addressing our problems if we don't increasingly see ourselves as a particular kind of animal that has a, a history that isn't about kings and queens in Europe, but it's a history that goes back into our evolutionary history and understands our kinship with, 
with the rest of nature, puts it in that kind of context. And I think we need that kind of story, really, with all of the issues we face. And in you know, a very modest way, that's what I was trying to do in Reason in a Dark Time, because when people talk about climate change, it's like we woke up yesterday and the climate was changing. You, I don't think you can even begin to address this problem without really understanding the depth of the historical commitment to, to, to carbon and how this has sort of played out in our knowledge systems through, through time. So I think there's a number of books like that, uh, of which the Harari is just, for me, a masterpiece of this. Is there a danger in those books to get too big and sort of lose sight of specificity or to sort of say, we're going to have grand explanation? Because Harari actually, at the end, he sort of starts to have some kind of <laughs> prognostic idea of what's going to happen in yeah. the world. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's another way of looking at it. So, of course, there are dangers to the left of us, dangers to the right of us. I think that's absolutely true. But here's another way of looking at it. We're living in a time of such incredible change yeah. that what had anchored our thought about the future it doesn't really exist anymore. So, for example, I, you know, even at the beginning of my teaching career, I could talk about the story of the Garden of Eden, for example, and concepts of a fall from paradise as sort of part of the common knowledge of students, right. um, you know, even if they weren't sort of religious believers right. of a particular kind. That's, that's not true anymore. There's no shared text. Right. But, <laughs> but, but, in, but increasingly, we're also now in a, in a situation where there's no shared nature, right? Because, I mean, I used to be able, growing up in California, living in Colorado, I could, I, I could talk about, say, the Sierra Mountains mm -hmm. before the pine beetles had devastated, oh. you know, the landscape. Okay. Uh, until, you know, I could talk about petroglyphs before superhighways had been you know, built to these petroglyphs that, and they were now being visited by tour buses. So I think we're in a time in which, you know, I, I, sometimes I think of this as the analogy of a painting. In, in order to do things in the foreground, you have to have something larger going on in the background. And, you know, and whether this is Harari, whether this, these are the kind of books I'm talking about, we need to share something to be able to have this dialogue at, 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 at present. And we used to presuppose that we had that, and we can no longer presuppose that. So we need to sort of create something that we share as a way of common understanding. I like this about this book, Reason in a Dark Time, that you think we have the capacity to come up with a new model, right. which may not be everlasting and maybe a model for the next right. period we're going to live through this Anthropocene, and we're going to live through it. Right. Also, I think the book is nice. It says we're not all going to probably perish soon. Some people will, so we better figure out how to live in this period rather than here's the cliff, I'm going to try to give a detour. That's not going to happen anymore, right? We're already getting... Exactly. Yeah, all right. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, thank you. You're I nice. really appreciate yes, it. Yes, and, yes, yes. Well, wonderful questions. Yes, it's yes. been a real pleasure exactly. to talk it's to you. It's been really fun. Thanks, Dale, and for coming today.